what what gets you worked up? What what really just eats you alive? What what gets you stirred up? Now I'm not talking about just things that irritate you. I can go over a whole list of things that irritate me. Um, Ohio drivers. <laughs> can, can I get a witness? <laughs> Well, not just Ohio drivers, but anybody that drives in the in the fast lane and drives slower than I want to go, that, that irritates me. Um, commercials, TV commercials irritate me, especially political commercials. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that irritate me. Telemarketers irritate me. Telemarketers irritate me so much that we took our home phone out a couple of years ago. We don't even, we don't even deal with that. Those are the things that, those are some of the things, just a few of the things, Miranda will tell you the whole list, but those are some things that, that irritate me. But there's a big difference between just being a little bit irritated over something and just really being torn up, isn't there? And just really getting worked up about stuff. What is it that really stirs you up? I mean, that stirs you up, that, that causes you to, want to emotionally boil over. I'm not talking about, you know, some uh, uncontrollable temper tantrum thing. I'm not even necessarily talking about anger, but I'm talking about what causes the emotions in you to well up to the point that you don't know whether to scream or to cry, or maybe both at the same time. What is it that stirs you up to that point? That's what it means to be provoked. This word that's used in the original when Paul was provoked, when he got provoked in his spirit, that's what he was feeling. That's how his emotions were boiled up, boiling over in him. This morning, as I said earlier, we're we're picking up in our journey uh, with Paul through these different churches, and we pick up when he gets to Athens. Uh, Most of us have heard about Athens. But so far along the journey, as we've walked with the Apostle Paul and the, and the men that were traveling with him, he's, he's experienced a lot of things, hasn't he? He's been run out of town, out of towns. He's been, he's been beating, he's been beaten. He's been sick nearly to the point of death. He's been falsely accused. He was even falsely worshiped in one place. He had a bad breakup with a dear friend. I mean, he had lots of emotional things that happened to him on the, la- on the way. He had demon-possessed people who came against him. He had sorcerers and people who were dealing in the occult who were coming against him. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been stoned. He'd been flogged. He'd been tortured. He'd been beaten. At one point, he was left for dead. All of those things the Apostle Paul went through in this journey so far... He experienced all those things, but his spirit was not provoked within him until he got to Athens. This was the first time that he's ever mentioned that. Let's look and see what bothered him so much. Go back to verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for Timothy and Silas to to come along. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. I don't know if you circle in your Bible, that's a good one to circle. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
I don't know what, what you remember from your history classes or your geography classes or any of those, but Athens was an absolutely stunning place. When we see the pictures, or if you've ever had the benefit to, to travel there, you, you see that they're all ruins now, ruins and monuments and museums and, and things like that. But in the day, in Paul's day, it was an absolutely stunning place. Over 1,500 years before Paul arrived, the city was built on the slope of a, of a mountain. It was overlooking a, a, a beautiful port that was about five miles away. So the sea air, when the wind would blow right, the sea air would blow in. The climate was beautiful. The rocky hills around Athens were, were dotted with vineyards and olive groves and just, I mean, you can picture the beautiful scenery there. And not just, it wasn't just a scenic city, it was also a very wealthy city. They were, their wealth was supplied by silver mines that were right outside of town. But the beauty and the scenic, the scenic beauty and the wealth, that wasn't what Athens was primarily known for. Athens was primarily known for being the intellectual center of the world. It was where all the smart people went to discuss all of these uh, uh, impactful ideas and thoughts. Folks like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle walked the streets of Athens. This was long before Paul, but that's what it was known for. These brilliant philosophers that still influence us today walked those streets. Now, by the time that Paul got there, it was it was way past its heyday, but even though a city is past its heyday, it still lives on its reputation, doesn't it? And that's what Athens was doing. It was living on its reputation. Even though it was in a period of decline, it was still holding on to that reputation. When people said the name Athens, these thoughts came to their minds. The bottom line is Athens was a stunningly beautiful, wealthy, culturally significant place. And it was wholly given over to idols. That's what Paul saw when he got there. When Paul saw that, he saw the idolatry, he saw the idols around him. When he saw all of that, it provoked his spirit within him. It boiled up his emotions within him. It tore him up. He, he wasn't distracted or provoked by the beauty of the place. He wasn't struck by the magnificent, beautiful architecture. He wasn't wowed by the brilliant philosophers. He wasn't going around autograph hunting. He was devastated by the lostness of the people. What do you see when you walk the streets of Bluefield, Virginia, or Bluefield, West Virginia, or Tazewell, or Princeton? What, what do you see when you walk our streets? Are you only captivated by the stunning beauty of the mountains or this time of the year when the leaves start to change? Are you only captivated by that? Or are you only drawn to our wonderful Appalachian history and our, and our heritage and culture and traditions? Are you only drawn to those things? Are you absorbed by the economic conditions and jobs and education and politics and all of those kinds of things that vie for our attention? 
Is that what you see? Or are you devastated by the lostness that's all around us? Does it tear you up? Does it make you emotionally boil over? Is your spirit provoked within you as you see that our area is full of idols? Okay, wait a minute, Jim. I was following with you. I was tracking lost people, all that. But we don't have idols, do we? Open your eyes. We have idols all around us. We don't have statues of Hermes and Zeus and all of those around us. But just like Athens, our area is wholly given over to idols. An idol is anything besides God that you look to for comfort or for peace or for benefit. What about physical fitness? Yoga, mindfulness, counseling, psychology, medication, entertainment, drugs, alcohol, sex. Those things can be idols because they can be. We have people all around us who seek those things for comfort or peace or benefit rather than God. An idol is anything that you devote yourself to or you serve with greater dedication and love and commitment than you do God. Education, sports, family, friends, work, money, hobbies, works-based religion. All of those things can be idols. They can be idols because you can devote yourself to those things with such great dedication that your dedication and love and commitment for God pales in comparison. An idol is anything that you attribute God's work to besides Him. Luck, fate, karma, self-determination, self-sufficiency. I can do it. I'm the master of my own fate. False religion. All of those things are idols. Yeah, even though we don't have statues of Zeus and Hermes and any of the others around here, our area is absolutely chock full of idols. Many of our neighbors are wholly given over to idols. Even though they're good people, many of our friends are wholly given over to idols. Even though they might talk about Jesus and they might even occasionally go to church, some of our family members are wholly given over to idols. So how does that make you feel? Does it tear you up? Is your spirit provoked within you? If it isn't, it ought to be. If it is, you need to do something about it. Look at what Paul did about it in verses 17 through 21. So as his, as his emotions are boiling over at the sight of this city wholly given over to idols, 
Verse 17 says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? By the way, that word babbler is a unique word. It's, um, it's somebody who would pick at words like a chicken would pick at seeds as a seed picker. That's not a very complimentary word for the Apostle Paul. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was this, was this public gathering place where the philosophers of the day would debate and argue thoughts. Brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They wanted to know what the new thing was, what the new thought was. When Paul recognized the spiritual condition of the people around him, it it broke his heart. And out of that broken heart, he proclaimed the gospel. He First, he went to the synagogue and he proclaimed Jesus to the religious people who already thought that they knew it all. Not only did he go to the synagogue, he went to the marketplace and he proclaimed Jesus just to the regular folks who were hanging out in the marketplace. He even went to the Areopagus, to that place where the really smart people went to present Jesus to them. In other words, he proclaimed Jesus to everybody not just those who were easiest to proclaim the gospel to. He proclaimed Jesus to everybody. Listen, do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? That'd be a good place for an amen. Do do you believe that Jesus did, really did what he said he did? If you believe that, do you believe what Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says? Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says that Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, all things, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Do you believe that? You believe that? Do you really believe what 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says? 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says that he, Jesus, is the propitiation. That means he's the payment for. He's the propitiation for our sins, not just for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you believe that? Do you really believe what Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says? Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you really believe that? If you really believe all of those things, then you also need to believe 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
You see, if you really believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and you really believe that Jesus did what he said he did, then you're going to have a passion. We're going to have a passion to implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Listen to me. The only solution for the idolatry of Athens was Jesus. The only solution for the idolatry of Bluefield is Jesus. He's the only solution. And if Jesus has saved you, he has entrusted his gospel with you. Reason with people in your life who are trusting religion instead of trusting Jesus. Reason with people in the marketplace who are just too busy or too distracted for Jesus. And if God gives you the opportunity, reason with people who think that they're too smart or sophisticated for Jesus. Now, reasoning with them, reasoning with them isn't just throwing out a God bless you or a Jesus loves you. Okay, I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm saying don't end with that. Don't chalk that up to reasoning with them. The reasoning with them isn't just inviting them to church either. You know, I tell you all the time, invite people to church. But inviting people to church is not where it stops. Reasoning with them involves opening a relationship with people. It involves showing kindness and showing understanding. It involves discussion. It involves dialogue with them. In order for that to happen, you've got to know who you're talking with. Now, here in the passage, we, we don't get to see how Paul reasoned with the religious people in the synagogue. We see that in other parts of Acts. We don't see how he reasoned with the common people in the marketplace. We see that in other parts of Acts. But, but we do, here in Acts chapter 17, we do get a glimpse of how Paul reasoned with the smart, sophisticated people of the age. Look at verses 22 through 31. <clears throat> so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Well, therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that his divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising them, raising him from the dead. All right, everybody still with me? That was a long passage to read. Everybody with me? Amen. Okay. <clears throat> As Paul was, I mean, this is basically his, uh, or a portion at least, the inspired portion of 
his his sermon, his discussion, his reasoning with these folks at the Areopagus. And as he was reasoning with the, the common people in the marketplace, he came across, they probably approached him, but he came across some of these really smart, really sophisticated people that Athens was known for. And it says that they love to know these new thoughts. So they they took Paul and they said, why, why don't you come and speak to all of us really smart people at the Areopagus? Now, listen, there, there are all kinds of really fascinating, worthwhile details in this, in this section that Paul gives us. We, we could spend all kinds of time talking about Epicureans and Stoics and all of the stuff that they believe and all of that. And if you're really curious about that, here's a plug for tonight. Just come on back and we'll discuss all of these kinds of, of intricate details about that if you want to. But suffice it to say now that these Epicureans and Stoics, bottom line was they were the academic elite of the day. And they would have never considered themselves to be idolaters. They, they, they wouldn't have recognized themselves as those who worshipped the idols. That was for the common people. Well, they were way too smart for that. So when they overheard Paul in the marketplace, what they sounded, what they heard, sounded ridiculous to them. They heard him talking about this Jesus and this Athanasius, which is Jesus and the resurrection. And when they overheard that, they thought he was talking about two other gods to add to their pantheon. And that was ridiculous to them, but they wanted to hear more, not so that they could understand. They wanted to hear more so that they could ridicule so that they could mock him so that they could undermine his ideas they wanted to hear more so that they could be entertained by this new kook who showed up in town they wanted to make fun of this guy that they saw as a religious simpleton paul wasn't intimidated though was he he might not have had the uh, that they knew of. He had far more academic credentials than they knew of, but judging by his appearance, they didn't think he had any kind of credentials. But he wasn't intimidated by them, was he? Have you ever been intimidated to share the gospel with somebody? I have. You know, they're too smart for me. Well, you know, they've got far more training than I have. What, what if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to? What if they ask me about what happened to the dinosaurs? <laughs> what, what, if, what if they're just wanting to make fun of me? You know what the answers are? The answers are in a song that most of us learned as little children. Jesus loves me. This I know. What's the rest of it? For the Bible tells me so. Right? That's the answer. Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 25 says. This is encouraging to me. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, or as the King James said, through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. When, now, when we just read through the words that Paul proclaimed to them, when we just read through that section just now, you might have been confused by, by where he was going with his argument and all the details and all of that kind of stuff. Like I said, if you want to, if we want to parse the, the details of that, come on back this evening and, and we'll spend some time doing that. But here's what you need to know about what he was saying there. Paul was speaking to people who didn't have the Bible. He was speaking to people who didn't know the Bible. They didn't know the Bible, but here's what they did know. They could open their eyes and they could see creation around them. Remember when we described the city of Athens, how it was on a beautiful hillside and there was beautiful gardens and olive trees and vineyards? They could open their eyes and they could see the beauty of creation around them. And they also knew the culture that they were part of. So that's where Paul started. He started where they were. He pointed to the idols around them and he quoted the poets that they were very familiar with. In our context, we're not going to point to an idol of an unknown God and we're not going to quote um, Greek poets. We might quote T. Swift. <laughs> right? We might, some of y'all look at me like, who's that? <laughs> we might quote uh, a song, songwriter or a singer of the day. We might quote something off the front page of the paper. And we might point to the idols of the day, like the economy or politics. But notice that Paul didn't stay there very long. He quoted their poets. He, he did that. He referred to their scenery. But he didn't stay there, did he? He, he, didn't, he wasn't there to debate the veracity of those things. No, he just used those to open the door to quickly point them as God as to quickly point them to God as creator and judge and then to Jesus. Listen, you don't have to be a brilliant debater. You don't have to be a know-it-all theologian to be able to witness to people. All you have to do is know the person you're talking to and know the person you're wanting to introduce them to. Here's what, here's what we do when we witness to people. We take a friend and introduce them to our friend Jesus. That's what we do. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't make it harder than it needs to be. Witnessing is as simple as introducing one friend to another friend. And when you're faithful to introduce people to Jesus, I wish that I could tell you that every one of them is going to get saved. But I can't do that. Look at how the people responded to Paul in verses 32 through 34. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Well, I don't like getting mocked, do you? Some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I, I wish that I could, you know, we've done Share Jesus Without Fear. We've done that a couple of times. We've got, you know, our marked up New Testaments and, and things like that. I, I wish that I could give you a perfect sales pitch that you could close the sale every time. 
But guess what? It's not about closing a sale. We are witnesses to a person. We're not salespeople. So if you've got that, that mental image of, of witnessing like it's some sort of a sales pitch, get it out of your mind. That's not what it is. We're not marketing a product. We're not pitching a customer. We are proclaiming a person. That's it. That is our sole evangelistic responsibility is to proclaim a person. Proclaim Jesus with our lives and proclaim Jesus with our words. You know why that's our sole responsibility? Because God is the one who saves. We're not the one who saves. Our cleverly designed presentations, that's not what saves. You can make a complete... Here's just a wonderfully encouraging thing to me. You can make a complete hash of your gospel presentation and the Holy Spirit can still draw somebody to Jesus. Amen? That is so comforting to me. But here's the flip side of it. You can make a perfectly reasoned, perfectly well-reasoned, perfectly clear, rationally argued, Bible-saturated gospel presentation and get absolutely no response. Or even worse, you could be rejected. You could be mocked. You could be verbally abused. Salvation is of the Lord. The Father planned what the Son procured, and the Spirit applies what the Son procured through the proclaimed Word of God. Our job is to proclaim Jesus. Proclaim the Word of God. We're called to proclaim the Gospel. That is our responsibility. Proclaim it to people who are trusting in their religion. Proclaim it to people who are caught up in the mundane marketplace of life. And proclaim it to people who are trusting in their own smarts and abilities and reason. Proclaim the Gospel. Proclaim the gospel and leave the results to God. Some will mock. Some will say, hey, that's interesting. Let's talk about this some more. But praise God, some will join us and believe. Don't you want to see that happen here in our community? Don't you want to see that happen in your family? Don't you want to see that happen in your school or your workplace? Don't you want to see that happen throughout our area? If you do, let me give you four quick steps to make that happen. First thing is, you need to be broken. You need to be broken. Open your eyes. We, We love to think of our area as some sort of a 21st century version of Mayberry. Well, Mayberry was fiction. And if that's your understanding of our area, then it's fiction as well. I know I just broke some of your hearts right there when I said Mayberry was fiction. Peel that veneer back and see what's really happening. Apart from Jesus, nice and neighborly is just as much destined for hell as cruel and dastardly. Don't be fooled by nice and neighborly. Nice and neighborly needs the gospel just as much. Everyone who leaves this life outside of Christ, everyone who leaves this life outside of Christ is doomed for hell. 
white people, black people, rich people, poor people, educated people, uneducated people, employed people, welfare people, Republicans, Democrats, independents, everyone who leaves this life apart from Christ is destined for hell. Whether they religiously attend church every week, whether they're in the marketplace downtown, whether they're in our colleges or universities, apart from Christ, no matter who you are, you are doomed to an eternity in hell. Does that break your heart? Those of y'all who picked up the paper this morning, I don't get the paper. Those of y'all who picked up the paper this morning and you flipped to the obituaries. Odds are the majority of the people that you saw on that page passed into an eternity of judgment. Does that break your heart? Open your eyes. Be broken. If you're not broken... Ask the Lord to break your heart for what breaks His. Ask Him to rip the calluses off your heart so that you can be broken by the lostness around you. So be broken. Second thing you need to do is be active. Be active. If the only people that you know are saved people, then you need to know more people. Reach the people you know, and then get to know more people that you can reach. You and I are surrounded continually by people. As an introvert, that just kills me sometimes. But we are continually surrounded by people. Strike up conversations with those people. Get to know those people. Get to know the people who are already in your social circles. God puts you in your social circles for a reason. Get to know those people. Take somebody out for lunch or a cup of coffee. Get to know them. Invite them to church, but don't just think that that's the end of it, like you've marked off your witnessing duty for the week. Now, that's just the beginning. Invite them to church, then interact with them afterwards. Talk about the service during the week. Talk about the scripture during the week. Talk about Jesus during the week. Here's the reality. Most of the time, people are not going to seek you out for spiritual wisdom and guidance. We have the responsibility of seeking them out. Now, sometimes they will, and praise God when it happens, we better be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. Most of the time, they're not going to. So we need to seek them out. We have to be active in seeking them out. Be strategic about seeking them out. Make a list of people who are in your social circle or who are even in your family that you want to be active in reaching out to. And hold yourself accountable to that. Better yet, better yet than just holding yourself accountable, you share that list with a brother or sister in here and ask them to hold you accountable to that. Be active in sharing the gospel. Third, be contextual. Paul shared the gospel differently to the religious people in the synagogue than he did with the common folks in the marketplace. And he shared the gospel differently with the common folks in the marketplace than he did with the philosophers there in the midst of the Areopagus. What I'm saying is he knew his audience. It's okay to start with 
John 3.16, or to start with the Romans road, was somebody who has a background in church. Somebody who grew up at least with a close memory of church or went to VBS as a kid. It's okay to start there. But you're probably not going to get anywhere, starting with John 3.16 or the Romans road, you're not going to get anywhere with a Muslim or an atheist or a hardcore agnostic like that. With the philosophers, Paul started with God as creator. He used cultural references that they were familiar with. He moved from the cultural references that they were familiar with and from God as creator to God as righteous judge. And then moved from God as righteous judge to the resurrected Jesus as Savior. The point is, he wasn't trying to close a sale with some sort of a canned presentation. He engaged people as real people with real beliefs and who had real issues. He met them where they were, and he led them to Jesus. That's what we're called to do. That's what I mean by being contextual. Meet people where they are and walk them to Jesus. Everybody starts from a different place, don't they? We need to meet them where they are. Be broken, be active, be contextual, finally be dependent. It's so easy to talk ourselves out of it, isn't it? You know, I don't know enough. If they ask a question that I don't know, you know, I don't know my Bible well enough. Let me get through this next year of reading my Bible through, and then then I'll at least be. It's so easy to talk ourselves out of it, isn't it? Well, you know, my life isn't good enough. What if I start sharing Jesus with somebody and they point to the inconsistencies in my own life? They're going to think I'm a hypocrite. There's all kinds of excuses, aren't there? Guess what? Our excuses melt away in the face of Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for your greatness or your abilities or your strength. He's looking for your obedience. See, Jesus is the one who's already done all the work. He's the one who lived a perfect, sinless life. He's the one who obeyed and became sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of Christ. He's already done the work. The Father's already provided the perfect plan. The Holy Spirit's already empowering you and speaking His Word through you. And He's already at work drawing the lost to Him. All He requires of us It's just like that hymn says, trust and obey, for there's no other way. Share the gospel, depend on God for the results. So what's your excuse? What's your excuse? Maybe you've never trusted Jesus for yourself. You've heard the gospel. You've been convicted by the Spirit over and over and over again. You've said, I'll hear you again about this. Listen to me. If that's you, who's to say the opportunity will ever come up again? At one time, Scripture says that the Spirit will not contend with man forever. Quit making excuses. If that's you, you need to trust Jesus today. Turn from your sin, turn to Jesus as Lord. 
Well, maybe that's not you. Maybe you have already trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior, but you're living in disobedience to Him. Maybe you're the one who said, well, I can't witness because people will point out that my lifestyle doesn't match the words that I say. Maybe you're living in disobedience to Him. Well, if your lifestyle doesn't match your your testimony this morning, then you need to repent. And, And you need to quit dragging the name of Jesus through the mud with you. Quit making excuses. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ as the victory, for the victory that He's already given you. Follow Him in obedience. Fact is, you and I are called to be witnesses. It's time to quit making excuses, and it's time to start obeying.